You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. This podcast is brought to you in association with BHA Medical. BHA Medical source, supply, implement and innovate medical technology solutions across the globe. BHA provide market-leading services in COVID-19 testing kits, medical products, smart technology and consultancy. One of the most recent devices they sell is the D-Heart. D-Heart is the first smartphone ECG device that's simple to use, clinically reliable, portable and affordable. It allows anyone to perform a hospital-level ECG in total autonomy and to send the results to a 24-7 telecardiography service or to your trusted doctor. So the app guides you to perform a professional ECG. It also has a Bluetooth ECG streaming in real time. It's got medical grade ECG technology, so 12 to 60 seconds of recording. You can charge the device directly in the case and the sleek design and manufacturing. So please see the show notes for further information. So welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this session, we're going to be speaking with Richard Lyon on traumatic cardiac arrest. So what I wanted to do is just examine some of the latest research uh, approaches to traumatic cardiac arrest and also look at the demographics and diversity of pathology that people see day to day. So we also want to examine the survival rates, empirical research, some of the blood products and the utility of high fidelity simulation uh, and the governance and debrief within traumatic cardiac arrest. So I also wanted to examine the utility of ultrasound and its application to practice. So Richard Lyon is a consultant in emergency medicine and pre-hospital care at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh and clinical lead for the Medic One team. He's also a HEMS consultant and director of research for Kent Sussex Air Ambulance. He studied at Edinburgh University, where he developed close research links with the Scottish Ambulance Service. He then undertook a unique doctorate thesis of out hospital cardiac arrest and a project that's developed into a national strategy for cardiac arrest in Scotland. So welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thanks very much, Owen. Really exciting to be here. Thanks for the uh, invitation. So Richard, just wanted to crack on and just um, maybe just first look at uh, just a working definition of traumatic cardiac arrest from, from your perspective. That's a brilliant question, Owen. And um, to be honest, I've changed my view on this a little bit in recent times. So a classic definition would be a traumatic arrest. Um, it is a cardiac arrest that's occurred following a traumatic incident. And therefore, the etiology of it is you know traumatic in nature. And if you look at for example, our 4Hs and 4Ts, which we're very familiar with. In the trauma setting, it's much more likely that hypoxia, hypovolemia, tension and tamponade are going to be one of those causes. Now, I say that because actually some of the research we've done recently has just thrown a caveat to that because what we think is a traumatic arrest might not be. So if you think about those... um, missions, for example, a fall from height or an RTC with not much in the way of an impact. Actually, some of our research suggests that up to about 20% of cases might have had a VFRS that's caused them to fall off the roof or a VFRS or a stroke that's caused them to crash their car. And of course, that's not immediately obvious. But I think the take home for me is you've just got to bear it in mind because what you don't want to do is miss a patient that is in a shockable cardiac rhythm um, because you're kind of fixated on the, the trauma side of things. 
That's really interesting. And like you said, very much hard to pass apart uh, when you approach the scene initially. And there's a lot of malaise and activity uh, ongoing. And one of the things I was really interested in is, is the fact and you will have this will be your reality as well is sometimes you don't have time to have the conversation about maybe not doing uh, cardiac chest compressions initially if the, if the etiology is a hypoxic or a hypovolemic one could you maybe just speak to Richard the maybe the acceptance and how thinking has changed from institutions from ambulance services and from staff over the past few years to 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 almost accept that maybe CPR isn't the first um, step you should maybe take in these in these patients yeah, I think it's a great point, Owen. And, and to be honest, I think we're still on a, a journey here. So what happened when traumatic arrest was sort of identified as, a, as an entity, you know, up until that point, we'd just been applying standard medical resuscitation algorithms, which included, you know, chest compressions, defib to these patients, which wasn't, of course, potentially the, the, the best approach. What we saw then was the advent of the traumatic arrest algorithm. So um, myself and some colleagues in London at the time developed the HOT algorithm that it's often known as. Um, a version of that has obviously been um, developed by the European Resuscitation Council, which is fantastic. So we now have an algorithm that, that is different for traumatic arrest than medical arrests. And what, what that, it doesn't, totally get rid of chest compressions in in tca because again we'll come on to it i i think there is a role certainly in some patients for chest compressions but what it does is it really emphasizes the need to reverse those reversible causes we've mentioned the hypoxia the tension the hypovolemia they've got to be reversed and stopped quickly and the danger is that if you just spend lots of time with hands on the chest, you're not going to reverse those. You're potentially not going to you know, cure the problem and you delay time um, to meaningful intervention in the, in the trauma patient. So I think we'll go on to it. I think some patients absolutely should not have chest compressions to start with, but others, others will. And that that's the evolution of the journey we're on that, what we now need to try and work out is how to work out, I, I say a lot of the time, what's killing your patient. You've got to identify what's killing your patient and, and address that cause. And sometimes very challenging, um, but sticking to the algorithm will certainly keep you right. So looking at the research um, into sort of survival rates, and I guess I could roll two questions into one here around mm. sort of um, why survival it, the, why the survival rate is so low and also who are the majority of survivors from 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 tca mm. traumatic cardiac arrest so i guess I, I guess my question could be really around yeah just looking why are the survival rate so low and and who are ultimately the ones that do well from tca no i mean it's another excellent question and i mean i think the first thing to say so is you know, why the survival rate is so low is because a large proportion of these patients, unfortunately, will have unsurvivable injuries. And a big chunk of them will have um, injuries that, you know, for example, a large vessel disruption, a disrupted aorta that is you know, bleeding heavily, a large vessel disruption within the chest. Patients that have true hypovolemia and have truly exsanguinated following an, an accident 
um, at the moment have incredibly low survival rates. If you think about those patients who have a catastrophic brain injury or those patients have a high cervical cord uh, transection, something like that, you know, at the moment, medical science technology does not have a solution for these patients. And of course, a big chunk of, of patients following trauma who have these injuries will, will be fatal. So the, the survivors we see tend to be from certain groups. And I think that this is, again, part of the journey we're on. We used to kind of just lump it all into the TCA box and say, is a TCA. Actually, we're being a bit more scientific about it now and saying, well, well what, why are they MTA, TCA? What has caused that condition to happen? So a new so example, for example, that was relatively new, a condition called traumatic brain apnea. Five, 10 years ago, no one had heard about traumatic brain apnea. And it was actually the, the motorsport industry that kind of brought this to our attention where medics at motor motorcycle races in particular would get to the scene very quickly. These patients had a knock on the head. They were profoundly unconscious and, and were apneic. Now, if nothing was done about that, that absolutely would deteriorate into a TCA picture. But if you just open their airway and in some case ventilated them a couple of times, they'd start breathing again. Their brain injury actually was, was, was not that bad. It was just a stunning phenomenon and, and they could wake up and actually be fine. So patients like that clearly will have a very high survival rate. Um, in the advent of some specific cases, so we think about penetrating trauma and, and cardiac tamponade, you know, London's air ambulance has really led the charge there with the advent of pre-hospital thoracotomy and actually, um, you know, have, have incredible survival rates for when that goes. And in a similar vein, we're looking at things like pre-hospital Reboa. So I think the take home for me Yes, survival from TCA is still low compared to medical arrest, but it's not zero. It's far from not zero. This, this is really important. So again, I've done, I've done a U-turn in my practice, I have to say, in the last decade. So 10 years ago, you'd say TCA, futile, don't launch, don't send the HEMS team, waste of time. Actually, again, latest research says in about half the cases that a bystander, a 999 caller says, I think I think their heart stopped after an accident. They're wrong. They're not. They might be in a low flow state. Yes, they're very, very sick, they're profoundly injured, but they will benefit from enhanced pre-hospital care. And so for that reason alone, we, we should commit our HEMS teams and our enhanced care services because they've got a lot to bring. So yes, it's it's low, but it's improving. And I, and I think it will continue to improve as we understand more about the conditions we're dealing with. It's really interesting you say that. And also, you know, something you said earlier, Richard, about you know, what is killing the patient? Because I suppose progression to another question would be, you know, your formulation together with Prof Lockie and others around the hot principle, so the hypervolemia, the oxygenation, the tamponade and tension, but and also the four Ts, uh, four, sorry, four H's and four T's. And actually what you're saying is, you know, it is more nuanced than that. You know, um, I'm just about to interview Zane uh, Perkins in a couple of months. He's, he's looked at over 600 thoracotomies in 20 years at London Hems. And, and he's, the findings seem to be that it's actually not a time, it's not potted 
in finite boxes, which is a time uh, limitation. There's, there's, as you were saying, the nuances of maybe underlying rhythm, conditions of, 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 of the of the arrest was there a hypoxic adjunct or factor involved was there a multifactorial um but it's it's not necessarily a linear 10 minutes of traumatic cardiac arrest and then you stop treatment and and this will hopefully work its way out into some of the sops but could you maybe just speak to some of the nuances uh, in, in care that it, that maybe should sit outside of the hot principles or indeed the four h's and four t's a hundred percent, Owen. And I think the other thing we, we, we've got to real, realize, though, is uh, there's a chain of care that these patients will have. And if you think about someone who's, you know, been in a bad, bad accident, whether it's blunt trauma, being hit by a car, or penetrating, being stabbed, the, the first person on scene is is always going to be a bystander. So the first thing is actually we can talk about all the enhanced care and clever stuff hems bring all the time but actually that's to me we've got to start looking at that so for example london are doing some amazing work um, with the use of, of good sam video technology and, and, and coaching bystanders so if you think about that um traumatic brain apnea case you know they just need someone to go and open their airway and actually we've got to we've got to tell a bystander go lift that person's chin in the air and I think to your next point, we've also got to remember that the next sort of chain, link in the chain is likely to be our ambulance colleagues. And this is what the hot algorithm is really designed to do. These ambulance colleagues, they, they, fortunately, they're only going to see a case like this once every few years. So actually, I wouldn't expect them to be able to, you know, diagnose what is really complex medicine sometimes. They're often polysystems. They might have a brain injury, they might have a tension, and they might have an open pelvis. That, that's, that's complex medicine to deal with all of that and then work out which one of those injuries is actually driving the, the, the actual arrest and what are you going to focus your efforts on reversing on. So the idea of the hot algorithm is to is to allow our ambulance colleagues a structure to say, look, we are going to rapidly um, and ideally with as much parallel working as possible, stop any catastrophic bleeding externally that you can see. I suggest put a supraglottic in and just oxygenate the patient, put two needles in the chest to rule out tension and splint everything that looks like it needs splintered and don't engage brain to do that just do it because the yield from reversing that is is going to be quite high and then the next step in the chain is the enhanced care so this is you know a, a critical care paramedic or a hems team that is seeing these cases a bit more often and therefore has a bit more experience just a bit more bandwidth to say right what is going on here and this is where i think the i guess that the art and this uh, of dealing with these cases comes in so for example the isolated traumatic brain injury having had the hot algorithm principle done will absolutely need some chest compressions to get oxygenated blood flowing around the body and perfuse that brain again because they've had a period of apnea and making that decision that this patient is not hypovolemic they don't need a blood transfusion they don't need vasopressor support what they need is oxygen through a secured airway and chest compressions to reperfuse the brain in the hope that you know they will regain consciousness versus that true hypovolemic patient that 
yes, we're going to, you know, give them blood products and hope that we can revive them. But if you think about the true hypovolemic, it, they are a real challenge because by definition, they've lost so much of their blood volume. They might have lost 50% of their blood volume to go into that arrest state. So actually, it's the diagnosis of the injuries that then becomes important. And, and clinical examination, clinical acumen, and I know you want to talk about ultrasound, all form part of that, of that decision making. But I think it's really important we don't forget about that chain because if we arrive to that traumatic brain apnea and they've not had their airway managed, they've not been given oxygen, they've not been ventilated, well, you can arrive with all of the cool, sexy stuff, but it's not going to make the blindness a bit of difference. So looking at um, the adage of blood uh, within the treatment of TCA and indeed whole blood, I, I suppose just the broader question would be rather than, than the, the, the potted sort of empirical question, what is, what, what's your perspective on, on whole blood at the moment within TCA? And, and indeed, um, sh again, should it be nuanced uh, and algorithmic? Sorry, should it be algorithmic or should it be nuanced uh, case by case, Richard? I think it has to be, Owen. You know, and I think part of the, I think what we've all been guilty of over the last few years is, is we just we just dump all of these cases in, into one pot, don't we? The TCA pot, you know. And and as we've learned, you know, the the penetrating trauma with an isolated tampillard is totally different from the traumatic brain apnea. And 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 you can and when we started carrying blood and certainly on KSS. You know, we were massively over-transfusing. We had it, we were just chucking it at everyone. Now, I've, I've actually had my first hypovolemic TCA survivor. Now, it's taken taken 20 years, I think, of doing pre-hospital care to have that. And, and, and this case, and I, I you know, stress I have consent to mention it from the patient, um, was in a nasty motorcycle accident. He had multi-systems trauma. And actually, he suffered a cardiac arrest. Now, again, this is where the detail is really important because he actually suffered a cardiac arrest after induction of anesthesia. Now, he arrested after just 40 milligrams of ketamine, so a tiny little dose. So do we class that as a TCA? Because a lot of these patients will undergo pre-hospital anesthesia. And, you know, they, they then arrest as a as a sort of consequence of that because you know the effect of the anesthetic taking away the sympathetic drive switching to positive pressure ventilation can very often tip patients over the edge so to answer your question about blood i, I absolutely think there is a role in for some patients to have a pre-hospital transfusion now when an enhanced care team arrive and the patient is already in tca and has truly bled out Yes, we chuck blood products at them. Their survival is very, very poor. It's, it's quite rare, actually. You get a ROSC in those patients. If you contrast that to the patient I've described, so they, they this patient had lost a lot of blood. You know, they had an open book pelvis, they had bilateral femurs, they had hemothorax. They'd lost, and they were holding on, absolutely holding on. They need an anaesthetic because their ventilation had fallen in the heat and they just couldn't ventilate anymore. And then we flipped them into, into cardiac arrest because they were right on the cusp of that hypovolemic threshold. You know, that patient needs transfused. There's no question about that. And, and in my view, they need transfused with blood products, just like we do in the hospital research room. And in this case, 
it, we did give them a lot of blood products. We got a ROSC and the patient has gone on to survive. Now, I'm, uh, you can say it's anecdotal. I think a lot of these cases are anecdotal because you do have to select very carefully which patients need, need blood transfusion. I think what we've all been guilty of over the years is we're probably a bit liberal with our transfusion, certainly in patients who are not in TCA. And I think there is a group of patients who are critically, critically unwell, who are on the verge of TCA and actually loading them with fluid, resuscitating them as much as possible before, for example, you have to anesthetize them. Will, will hopefully prevent them deteriorating as a consequence of the anaesthetic, will tie them over until you can get them to definitive care in hospital. I think the question around whole blood is, is a very interesting one. So we, um, I am part of a group, this, the SWIFT trial group, that's looking, looking at this. Of course, if you look at, it just makes sort of intuitive sense that you know when, 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 when you donate blood, it's, it, if you look at the Vietnam War, the Vietnam War, you took blood out of soldiers and put it straight into another soldier and their survival rates were astounding and over the years because of the, the real need obviously to to preserve blood to be able to store it we separate it into the pack cells the plasma the platelets and then we need to give it we kind of want to put it all back together again to give it to the patient and surprise surprise the closer you get to a one-to-one -one ratio for example of pack cells to plasma the better your survival we probably shouldn't be surprised at that. We're just recreating what the body made in the first place. So it makes absolute intuitive sense that whole blood should 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 be better. And, and some of the historical evidence, certainly from military practice, would suggest that. I think the difficulty we're going to have is, is proving that. And I think the other big difficulty we're going to have is like i said before it's all about patient selection and if you give it to the patient that didn't need it or if you give it to the patient that was always going to be futile it makes doing research and proving proving it exceptionally challenging because of course both of those cases didn't need pre-hospital transfusion in the first place but you're not to know that and making these clinical judgment calls is incredibly challenging Absolutely right. You know, it skews the data almost, and it's not all about the data, it's about patients, but having that heterogeneous case mix where actually, you're right, it was non-survivable injuries in the first place. And it's, it's difficult to prove outcome when, when the case mix is heterogeneous and it's, it's, um, maybe not representative of 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 that but of an isolated pathology which would benefit um that patient group um can i just get you to speak to something completely different actually richard just around you and me both have attended a number of um traumatic cardiac arrests where almost the first posture or first move is is not a clinical one but a a non-technical one and there's a lot of malaise and chaos and freneticism around some of these cases could you maybe just speak to the adage of high fidelity simulation as an analog of reality to really test people's non-technical skills because i really found this to be a differentiator uh between what might be a successful management of the scene versus a, a non-successful one I think it's a great point, Owen. I really do. And my personal view is that to operate in the sort of 
90% plus of our of our personal bandwidth. So what I mean by that is, you know, overloading our, our, our mental ability to process and do and communicate and listen and allocate and all this kind of stuff when we're under this extreme pressure. And that's going to vary depending on who you are, your experience, what case you've had before. And I think the best example of this I can give is myself. The first time I had to anesthetize a child pre-hospital, I'd never anesthetized a child before pre-hospital. I, I was working as a locum in a service. I'd never worked in with a paramedic I'd never worked with. And, and, I, and I was so overloaded, I forgot to do the checklist. I mean, it's like a sackable offense, as you know, in, in, in UK HEMS, you forgot to do the checklist. And that that's an example of being completely overwhelmed you know we become so overwhelmed with the situation we, we cease to do important things now that is going to be very different from from different people so i heart back to my my paramedic colleagues that have such an important role to to, to play and they are likely to experience that at a lower stage of stress because like you say they they've not seen something like this before it's the first time they've encountered a TCA and and you're right that these cases often have you know high emotion there's lots of bystanders around you know there might be relatives parents screaming wanting their loved one to survive you might be on the side of a motorway someone's been stabbed and there's all that sort of situational stress my personal view is that if you've been in that situation before or you've felt that pressure before you will do better the next time it's like pilots. You know, pilots deliberately overstress themselves in the simulator so that when they face it for real, they will be better. Now, the the, the way I managed to safely anesthetize that child is because I'd done it a lot of times in simulation. And it actually, I was like, I've done this before. I'd never done it before, but I had done it in simulation. You might have done a lot of simulation. And when I do simulation, I like to be deliberately overstressed. I like to be pushed to my absolute limit of functioning because that's pushing my bandwidth further to the right. It means the next time I will function better under that stress. And, and TCA is a great way to just ramp up the stress levels. You know, everything we've talked about, it just cranks it right up there straight away. So I think if you've been in a simulator, and it doesn't necessarily need to be high fidelity, actually just low fidelity with a mannequin, with a decent instructor simulator, Someone who can deliberately stress you out, someone who can deliberately take you either to your limit or close to your limit, but certainly up into the 80%, 90% of bandwidth overload will mean you, in my view, you will function better on the day of the race. One of the things I often say is under pressure, you don't suddenly rise to the occasion. Under pressure, you will fall to the level of your training under pressure you fall to the level of your training so you've got to train and train and train so when you're under pressure you'll perform that's a great way to look at it actually and um and and you're right some i think actually what what, what it does is allows you to start to burn into your subconscious a certain level of stimulation um to differentiate the signal from the noise and the the next the the next priority amongst that noise um in 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 hopefully a safe environment as an adjunct to that um richard could you maybe speak to what can we learn from the debrief and governance of these cases and indeed of of high fidelity simulation because i think sometimes 
I've learned as much from the debrief of a training case as I have from and about myself uh, as a debrief from a uh, a real case. But could you maybe speak to the utility of debrief and governance to 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 an adjunct of learning? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think for me, it's it's absolutely vital. So. Obviously, governance has multiple roles, um, but the, the role we'll focus on is, as you say, is, is the learning and the educational aspect. So it's been very well shown that you, by sitting through a debrief as part of a governance day, for example, and listening to the case and discussing the case, you'll pick, you, you weren't there, you weren't doing the case, but you're listening about to the case, you're, you're learning from your colleagues, you're, you're sort of going through it again. And certainly I've been in a number of situations where you suddenly think, I've been here before, I've seen this before. And you haven't actually, you've never seen it before, but you've heard about it in a debrief, you've heard about it in governance. And I think in TCA, yes, we've got this algorithm and the, and the algorithm is designed to, you know, to be simple to follow. So when you are stressed out, you're operating in that high bandwidth zone. If you just follow the algorithm, you're gonna do a lot of good and you're hopefully gonna reverse things. For me, the role of the debrief and hearing about the cases is, is then the next level. So it's kind of the, the nuance. So for example, the case that I had recently where you know this patient is profoundly injured, multi-blunt systems trauma, given 40 of ketamine and he, and he arrests. I changed my view on that and I've, I've heard and we've discussed it. And what we've discussed a lot is the role of adrenaline in, in traumatic arrest. And of course, a few years ago, we would say, there's no role for adrenaline in these cases. They're already massively, their adrenaline level is already massively high. And I, and I buy that. This, 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 this kid was talking to me five minutes before. He was clinging on to life. And all of a sudden, I've given him some drugs that have wiped out that sympathetic drive. I've taken it all away. I've taken away that huge sympathetic urge he has that's clinging on to life, that's contracting every blood vessel he's got, that's keeping his heart pumping. And I just took it in a way, in, in multiple ways, you know, the ketamine does it, the rock does it. And I had this overwhelming desire to reach for a mini jet of adrenaline. And, and that's because we, we've discussed these cases, you know, the neurogenic shocks will benefit from it. There's been a, an acceptance that in some cases, adrenaline, I think, is useful. And I, I've no doubt in that case that it was that adrenaline that got the ROSC and got the ROSC quickly. So I think hearing about these cases and realizing that TCA is, is a heterogeneous group and actually just little tips and tricks about how to recognize the pathology, how to recognize. So another great example, and I think this is, I guess, debriefing on a national level. You know, one of the, the UK air ambulances had, uh, I think it was a fall from height and they did an ultrasound and they saw a tamponade and they did a thoracotomy, and the patient survived. Now, we're well off-piste in terms of normal. You know, you don't normally get a tamponade from blunt trauma. You don't always do an ultrasound, and you certainly don't normally survive a blunt thoracotomy. But because of, because of national case sharing and awareness, that's just there now. You think, right, you know, I just need to consider it, actually. So I think it has a vital role when we have cases like a TCA that are rare, they are rare, that we are still understanding and you know, we, none of us see these on a regular basis. And of course, the last part is if you do have information from post-mortem examination or, or hospital, 
actually what were the injuries you know none of us have ct x-ray eyes so actually that's crucially important when you have a case following it up yourself to to understand what the injuries were will enforce your education or make you a better clinician so the next time you come to see these patients you know hopefully you're going to you're going to pick up more of the injuries that you might not have done otherwise that's a really interesting point actually and using sops as baseline because as you're inferring none of these patients are standard so sort of standard operating procedures may be utilized as baselines but as long as it's justified deviating from those baselines according to the pathology according to the mechanism of injury according to the the circumstances and i suppose as an adjunct to that question richard where and how have you seen the utility of things like ultrasound change your approach to 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 treating to my traumatic cardiac arrest yeah it's fascinating because because when i trained in pre-hospital care we didn't have ultrasound you know the technology wasn't just wasn't there it was one of these wheelie things that you got wheeled into the resource room you know compared to the flip up things you have on your iphone now so I didn't train with it. And um, so when it arrived, I've, I've always been, I guess, slightly behind the curve compared to some of my, you know, my, my junior colleagues or certainly some of my paramedic colleagues who are ultrasound whizzes and, you know, diagnosing things left, right and centre. I'm always so impressed. I think, I think it potentially does have a role. And I think, again, it comes, it's, it's not the first thing I would bring out of my pocket. You know, I think, you know, you've got to address those reversible causes. You've got to assess a CMD, a clinical examination, but then it is certainly an adjunct. So I think where it can be extremely helpful um, is certainly in penetrating trauma, not as a, a first line. So if, if you rock up and the patient is in TCA, you're gonna to have to crack on and make a decision around you know, whether they're eligible for a thoracotomy, for example. But for example, in the, in the patient that's been stabbed and they, they are critically unwell and you're potentially a long way from hospital, and you, you just kind of want to know, is there a tamponade? Is there not? Because that's going to certainly influence your decision-making. A super quick look in ultrasound is going to give you that information. So I think that's a very specific example. I think another useful um, use of it is, is in actually deciding around sort of futility and cardiac arrest. So certainly in an ongoing resuscitation, at an appropriate time point, and that I stress that's not immediately, that's going to be you know, after you've secured the airway and got access and, and doing all the things that are going to treat the patient. A look at the heart and saying, for example, you know, is, is there cardiac activity? So if, if there's cardiac activity, if you can see that heart moving, that heart is trying to survive something is preventing that heart from generating, you know, a palpable pulse. And then, and then the onus is on you to find it. You know, what is it that's doing it? Is it obstructive shock? Is it hypovolemic? If on the ultrasound, there is no cardiac activity at all. So there's no motion. So you might see electrical activity on your, your monitor, on your ECG, your DFib, but that is not causing any movement of your heart muscle the chances of that case surviving are, are really now very, very slim. And it, it's not zero, nothing's absolute, but it's certainly very close. And I think, you know, that in terms of prognostication values is, is, is quite, quite helpful sometimes. 
Um, so those are sort of specifics that I would use. I think the key for me is you're using it to answer a question and you're using it for a reason. So I think kind of blunderbuss use for interest and then doing your kind of, you know, full, fast examination, uh, unless you're doing it to answer a question that is going to affect your treatment in the next few minutes, don't, don't be distracted because everything's consuming bandwidth. Um, but I do, I do think there is, I do think there is a role for it. So looking at um, pre-arrest rhythms um, in, in TCA, so just maybe peri-arrest rhythms, just in your, from your perspective, Richard, how much does this affect survival from your experience and indeed maybe from empirical, empirical research? Yeah, I mean, I just to stress that point again, a big chunk of these will have a shockable rhythm that leads to the situation. And I think that's a good take home for the listeners is, you know, don't forget that because if it's shockable rhythm, the survival rate could be pretty high. I think what, what usually happens is then as the pathology develops, so particularly the hypoxia, the hypovolemia, you know, the, the heart will, will, will struggle to, to maintain an output whilst it's being compromised. And it's, it's likely to go through a sort of a, a series of, um, you know, tachycardia with an output to then loss of cardiac output. But, but in a, this is a really important bit in that sort of low flow state where it might still actually be generating some underlying flow. You know, you just can't feel it. Um, that will then just, you know, deteriorate further into, into, a, into a true, PEA, so that there was electric activity, but the heart's not actually doing anything, and that then deteriorates into into asystole. So I think for me, coupling what the what the heart's doing in terms of electrical activity, um, certainly in terms of it, its rate, and also the end tidal. So if you've got a patient, for example, you know the patient I had recently, who's you know, profoundly tachycardic, their end tidal, you know, is on the sort of lower end of normal, but They've just about got a got a perfusing blood pressure. And our patient is crying out to survive, and, and you've got to get on and very aggressively treat that patient. If you've got the patient who, um, you know, you, you get there, yes, there's there's activity on the monitor, but their entitled 0.5, the heart rate's 30. You're, you're in a really difficult position there, and it, I think survival from something like that is going to be really really low. Um, and then once you're asystole, you know, asystolic um, recovery, unless you reverse that very, very quickly, it's going to have a very poor outcome. So I think all of it is, is serving to inform, you know, what treatment the patient is going to get, how aggressive you're going to be. You know, for example, if I, if I get to a patient and they've been in TCA for the last 20 minutes, 30 minutes, they've been asystolic throughout that entire period. Resuscitation is ongoing. Um, that entitles 0.4, I'm, I'm probably going to make a decision not to transfuse that patient, for example. I'm not, I'm not going to you know, throw valuable resource in terms of blood products of this patient because I think it's futile from the outset. Contrast that to the other cases we've, we've, we've discussed you know, where we've got you know, you know, a heart that's trying to survive, that's tachycardic with a good entitle. Of course, you're going to crack open your blood box. Um, and, and be really aggressive in the management of these patients. So I hope I think it just helps in that overall situa- situational awareness, and it clarifies your your clinical decision making and your prognostication for these patients. 
So Richard, as we come into land on the conversation, just mindful of time, um, it's fantastic. You know, we've really brought together, like you said, just paying attention to the detail and to the history of the case and some of the nuances of each presentation and indeed the non-technical skills needed from, from training into practice and the utility of, of debrief, all these things. Could I, um, could I just get you to speak to a few final take-home messages for listeners, just, uh, just that they could remember and recall and hopefully potentially bring forward into their practice? Yeah, I think a few take-homes are known. So number one, practice. Under pressure, you will fall to the level of your training. So practice, simulate, be ready for these cases because they are rare. Under pressure, you'll fall to the level of your training. Number two, if you're called to a TCA, don't necessarily assume, one, it is a TCA. It's likely that actually they are critically injured, but not yet in TCA. And as part of that, remember, a big chunk will have had a medical arrest first. So just consider that and have an early rhythm check. Don't miss the fact that they're in a shockable rhythm. And thirdly, know the algorithm, drill the algorithm so that when you are under that pressure, it's an instinctive reaction to look for external hemorrhage, initially control the airway with the supraglottic, put the needles in, splint whatever needs splinted and get vascular access and just drill that and be very familiar with it. So practice, don't assume they're going to die and know your algorithm. Richard, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate both your perspectives and, uh, and insights. Thank you, mate. No problem, mate. My pleasure. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.